If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, we'll be reading verses 34 through 46. Matthew 22, 34 through 46. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? But when the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anything. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Dear Lord, our souls faint with longing for your word and its truth. We have put our hope in your word. Our eyes fail waiting for your promise. We say, when will you comfort us? Though we have been troubled, we do not forget your decrees. How long must we wait? When will you punish our persecutors? All your commands are trustworthy. Help us, for the day of wicked men is upon us. They want to wipe us from the earth. We'll not forsake your precepts. We hold your word. Preserve our lives according to your love. And we will obey the statutes of your mouth regardless of our circumstances. In Christ's name, amen. Theology has no greater message for us as fallen men than the preeminence of our Lord. Jesus Christ holds a place above creation, a place that defines everything that flows from him. That preeminence is the ground of his place at the Heavenly Father's right hand. Because of his place, we see the glory that is his. We see the glory of Jesus as the Son of God. Today, we have to really work hard to understand the important sonship places on our relationship with God. I'm not sure that the idea of, of sonship is as important in our day as it has been in past ages. There was a day not too long ago when illegitimacy was a stain on a child that was very difficult to remove. It was important that the person could identify where he came from. They needed to know who their father and mother was, especially who their father was because it is from the father they received their name. Jesus certainly entered this world under the cloud of who his father was. His enemies didn't want to accept him as coming from God the Father. They knew the circumstances around his birth, and they wanted to label him illegitimate. Jesus was very much aware of all of this. So in Matthew 22, verse 42, 
he asked his enemies, the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I've been told from my early childhood that Jesus was the son of God. I've always believed that to be true. But what proof do I have to sustain it? Can it be proved logically? There are many people who want to deny this is true. We have to be careful when dealing with such people. No skeptic has the right to deny a spiritual reality without following his theory of skepticism until it has come to its logical conclusion. The same thing is true of those who hold a spiritual truth. There are certainly many things in this upside-down world that doesn't make sense. You can look at this world and realize there is much that cries out against God and his word. Men are trying hard to run this world without God. You can see the results that causes. It brings about a world in turmoil. It has brought us into a senseless environment. A time in history where men deny the most basic truths concerning men and women. Where children are abused in a terrible and sexual way. A time where life is seen as valuable only by what it can contribute to these perverted views of life. In the midst of all of this is something that is secure, something that can be a foundation for life. It's what the scripture presents concerning who Jesus Christ is. He is the second person of the triune Godhead, the God incarnate, the one who has all glory. The only one who can be worshipped and obeyed by all men. The prophet said in Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a son is given, but whose son is he? In this statement, we have the beginning of one of the most important and exalted themes applied to Jesus, namely his sonship. This is one of those doctrines Christianity stands or falls by. If this doctrine is not true, then all the rest of Christianity fails. Therefore, if you have any distortion in your mind of this doctrine of Christ's sonship, you cannot be considered a part of true Christianity. You cannot be considered a Christian, one who is assured of a place in heaven. That is how important this doctrine is. Let's turn to the scripture and consider the sonship of our Lord and how that provides him with great glory. Our text for this message is Matthew 22, verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. This is the question every person considering Christianity must answer. Whose son is Jesus Christ? This is the question that establishes your understanding of Christ's glory. Let's consider the question this morning. Whose son is Jesus? We will first consider him as the son of God. Second, we shall look to him as the son of Mary. Third, we will see Christ as the son of David. Fourth, we will shall hear of him as Abraham's son. This should help you to recognize the glory of this one who saved your soul. We begin by looking at Jesus as the son of God. This title shows the deity of Jesus. 
Matthew, or John 10, verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus asked the crowd why they accused him of blasphemy simply because he called himself the Son of God. He gives in this the distinction between himself as the Son of God and all other men as sons of God. What Jesus meant was that God was his Father in the sense in which he's the Father of no other. This needs to be clearly understood. It's not possible in the realms of science philosophy or theology that a case can be made for a natural relationship between God and men like what existed between Jesus and God. Jesus was constantly speaking of his unique sonship with God as his father. He never used the term our father except in what he, we call the Lord's Prayer. He did this because the disciples had asked him to teach them to pray. Jesus began this with the words, this is how you should pray. Here's the example. The, pr the prayer here is for the sinner. It's for the one called of God. The one who needs to ask for forgiveness. So sinners are the ones who this prayer was written for. This is what he's telling you as a sinner. You need to pray. Listen to this prayer the Lord taught his disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The focus here is on what God needs to do for you and what you must do to stand in his good graces. This lays the ground for the difference between Christ's sonship and the believer's sonship. Note, God is not the father of the unsaved. Jesus spoke often to others about their kinship with God. He did so in Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father your trespasses. The Lord's Prayer, along with Jesus' explanation of your need to be forgiven and to forgive, shows an important truth. It establishes. It establishes your relationship as a believer to God as your Father. You must see you need Jesus to come to the Father. Your relationship with the Father is dependent. Dependent on Jesus Christ as God's Son and on Him alone. He alone can cleanse you so you can come to the Father. Jesus shows the difference. In Matthew 18.10, he speaks of children. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Note he calls God my Father, not our Father. To encourage his disciples to pray, he promises in Matthew 18.19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that you, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, he says, my Father, not our Father. Jesus Christ was sent into this world. 
He was sent to prepare a people to come unto the Father. He did those. He did for those people what they could never do for themselves. He lived the perfect life. He died the atoning death. He won the resurrection victory. It's his eternal presence with the Father that makes him the only begotten Son of God. In the Lord's Prayer, he shows the difference. He shows your needs as believers, but he also shows your status before God by opening it with our Father. He's our Father, collectively. He's our Father if we're believing and trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. In all of this, Jesus is speaking to his most intimate friends. Yet, he does not include them in this unique relationship he has to the Father. He repeatedly says, not our Father, but my Father. You can see in this the special relationship he understood he, as the Son of God, had with his Father. This title, the Son of God, is used by others to show the dignity and glory due him. The dignity of Christ Jesus comes from who he is and what he did. He was in a very special way the Son of God. He came into this world to do the works of his Father. Works that gave him divine dignity and all glory. Every claim of Jesus about himself and by others that he is the Son of God are simply remarkable. They show the eternal relationship between Father and Son. You also must understand his title as Son of God is not founded in his virgin birth. Now that's it's really important that you understand this. He didn't become the Son of God based on his birth. He was and has always been the Son of God by inherent right from eternity. The prophet declares, unto us a son is given. He wasn't referring to Christ's incarnation because just before he said that, he said, unto us a child is born. The son was given before the world was made. The son in the fullness of time became flesh. The disciples understood this. They made it clear in John 16, 30. We believe that you came forth from God. This shows Jesus had a unique relationship with the Father. It was this relationship with the foundation of his work on behalf of his people. It's this relationship that gives him the glory he alone has in this world. Now please understand, this is very important to us. You need to understand and believe that God, Jesus came from God, that God sent him into this world to do for you what you could never do. How could you overcome sin? Because you had no worth in your own of your own. You had committed treason against God and Adam. Therefore, you were lost and without hope. Jesus Christ was sent into this world to bring hope to you. He came to do for you those things you could never do. It's believing and trusting in Christ and in Christ alone that brings you salvation. You can't be saved without him. You have to hear the message. You have to understand who he is and what he has done for you. And then place your hope and your trust in him and in him alone. Now, not only does scripture show Jesus as the son of God, it also shows him as the son of Mary. Mark 6, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son, Mary, and the brother of James, Jose, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. 
The crowds in Nazareth were amazed at the wisdom this carpenter, this son of Mary, displayed. Now, please understand, they were not justified in calling him a carpenter. I want you to note, only those who opposed Christ, only those who hated Christ ever called him a carpenter. However, the crowd was justified in calling him the son of Mary. He is as much the son of Mary as he is the son of God. Through Mary, he has his humanity through God. He has his divinity. There are those who believe who don't believe in Jesus' humanity. They believe he was some kind of mirage. They believed that, that no one could touch him. Oh, they could see him but not feel him. The Nicene Creed says he is very God of God and very God of very God. It could also be said he was man of man and very man of very man. He was both divine and human. He possessed a real flesh and blood body. This is very important. You could not be saved from your sins without bringing together the divine and the human. Both were needed to redeem you from your sins. Christ needed to be God in order to give his sacrifice the efficacy required to be accepted by God. He had to be perfect. He had to pay the price for your sins. Without his divine nature, he could never have lived a perfect life. He also had, a hum had to be human. It was man who sinned against God. Therefore, only man could offer the price required to restore him to his place with God. Jesus came to take his human nature, flesh and blood, and to be able to offer himself in the place of men. Only a man could have hung that, on that accursed tree. Was Jesus really and truly a man? Yes, he was. He was conceived in Mary's womb. God took the substance of Mary and purified it so that he could make for Jesus a perfect body. The foundation of his body was from Mary, therefore human in every way. Jesus was born with the human nature of Mary. He didn't receive her fallen nature. He was given her human nature apart from her sin. How did this happen? Mary asked the same question in Luke. Luke 1.35, the angel answers her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now to overshadow means to encase uh, to envelop, maybe to imprison. Mary was shut in. She was hedged about by the power of God so that the child was not influenced in any way by her sinful nature. God, taking her substance, purified it, created Jesus' human nature without the taint of sin. Jesus was the son of Mary. He was fully her son in every respect as far as his human nature was concerned. He was not the son of Joseph. His humanity was confirmed in Mary. If Jesus had not been born of a virgin, then we don't know who his father is, and he must be called illegitimate. If he is illegitimate, then he can't come into the temple. Deuteronomy 23.2 One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the temple, the assembly of the whole Lord, even to the death genera tenth generation of his descendants. Jesus had no earthly father. He did have a father, and he was God. 
he entered the temple to minister in the name of his father. Through his virgin birth, glory is accorded to him as the only one who could do for his people what they could never do for themselves. He lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, won the resurrection victory, for which he is due all glory from all men. Now, who is this Jesus? We can see part of who he is in Matthew's genealogy of Christ. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What we learn here is that there is a very distinct relationship between David, the great king, and Jesus Christ. This shows Jesus' royal connection with the people of Israel. He is the true heir to the promise of God made to David. You have to remember, Jesus is not an heir to the actual throne of the nation of Israel. That throne had long ago been lost. Jesus is the heir to the promise made to David. The promise was that one from his lineage would be a leader and savior of his people forever. Jesus came from a line that had long ago dried up as far as royal power and presence was concerned. Isaiah 11.1 There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Using the word stem, or as some others translate it, stump, shows that David's line had been cut off as far as power was concerned. Isaiah 53, 2-8. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. The line Jesus came from was dry ground as far as royal presence was concerned. The Virgin Mary was a descendant of David. He came through Nathan, one of David's sons that never became king. Nathan was a son of David, and he didn't ever follow that lineage. He was not part of the kingship. The Messiah of Israel was to be born of a virgin. Therefore, the virgin had to be a descendant of David, which is shown to be true in Luke. Matthew in his genealogy shows that Joseph also was of the line of David. Why is it important to acknowledge Joseph as the line of David? Because while he was not Jesus' physical father, he was Jesus' legal father. In Matthew, the lineage of Joseph is through all the kings. In Luke, the image lineage of Mary was, has only one king in it, and that's David. Mary passed on the human nature of David to Jesus. In Matthew 1, 20, 21, God appointed Joseph to the role of Christ's legal father. The right to the throne came from Joseph as his legal father. Joseph could not have given him the throne of Israel because he had no right to it himself. But he could pass on the promise to the throne in heaven that was given to David as his ancestor. The Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David as he sat on the throne, he came with a promise. That promise established a divine covenant. 2 Samuel 7, 8, and 16. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, This says the Lord of hosts, I, look you, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people. 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We know that after David died, Solomon came to the throne and reigned over Israel. 
It was a reign of peace and prosperity. The temple was built and the nation established among the nations of the world. The wisdom of Solomon was great. It was known far and wide. It surely looked to those of that day as though the kingdom would last forever. But as we follow Solomon's life, we see his personal decline and the subsequent decline of the nation. Solomon, by his life, contradicted what the temple stood for. His folly weakened the foundation of the nation. It was not long after his death that the nation reaped the fruits of his foolishness. His descendants didn't do so well in living up to God's law, and the kingdom continually declined. You could say that the kingdom under the natural sons of David was a complete failure. Because of their sins, the nation was destroyed by the Babylons around 600 B.C. The line of the great king was removed from the throne. Over 200 years after Solomon, God sent the prophet Isaiah to Israel. He brought, it, brought a message of hope concerning the kingdom. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice from that time forward, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I don't see any condition, any condition that would allow this to be seen as Solomon's kingdom. Solomon was already dead and in his grave. His kingdom had also disintegrated. Isaiah was looking further into the future. He was looking to one who would come that was greater than Solomon. He was looking to Jesus Christ. We are told in 2 Chronicles 9, 17, Solomon made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. That throne was overthrown. It was destroyed. In Hebrews 1, 8, God says to his son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Christ, the son of David, came into this world to establish his kingdom and his throne. In Jerusalem, he entered the city on Palm Sunday. We call it his triumphant entry. He came to announce his kingdom and the kingdom promised to David. You remember the people and what they sang out as he came in? Hosanna. They were, they were praising him because they understood and saw that he would be the Messiah. Yes, he was crucified and buried because of his entrance into Jerusalem. All of this was necessary to open this kingdom to the people of the world. Jesus lived a perfect life before God. He went to the cross to die an atoning death and win a resurrection victory. He completed the covenant of works on the behalf of his people. He returned to the Father in victory. He was then placed on the promised throne of David. This was the heavenly throne, not the throne of the nation of Israel. This was the throne promised to Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords through King David. For this, the world owes to him all glory and honor. For this, he is the preeminent one over heaven and earth. This sonship with David was important. The sonship with Abraham is also important. If you are to understand the glory that is our Lord's, listen to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, 
Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The difference, the difference in the two sonships is that David's was restricted to one of his sons only, while Abraham's extended to all the nations of the earth. In the last phrase in Genesis 12, 3, a promise is made to all nations. The promise is, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How is that to happen? How are all people going to be blessed by this one man? The Apostle Paul shows the answer. Galatians 3, 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. As Matthew 1.1 shows, Jesus is the son of Abraham, and Paul affirms he is the one seed of Abraham through whom the promises given Abraham will be fulfilled. What, what is this blessing that will come to all the nations of this world through Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham? It's the fulfillment of the covenant works. Jesus came into this world to do for you what you could never do for yourself. I know I talk a lot about that. But it's because that's the heart of the new covenant message. Jesus purchased through his life, death, and resurrection justification by faith alone. He purchased that for you. There has never been a greater blessing given to the world of men than this. You don't have to work to earn your place with God. Jesus did all the work required to save your soul. All you need to do is place your hope, your faith, your trust in him and in his works to be accepted in God's presence. What glory this brings to his name. Now understand, I don't want you to go away thinking we don't have to work. Our work comes in the justification process. Justification is God's work. He does all of it for us. And he brings us into the place we're justified, we're sanctified before him, which means we're set apart to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. So you have works to do, but you're not earning your salvation through. You're showing your love and appreciation to God for what, you, what he has done for you. As we continue the various aspects of Jesus' life and the titles he holds, I don't think it's possible to miss the glory the Father bestowed on him in everything he did in this world. Charles Spurgeon, on speaking of the glory of Christ, said that as the rivers run into the sea, so all the delights of this world run into Jesus Christ. He added to these words, The gladness of his eyes outshine the sun. The beauties of his face are fairer than the choicest flowers. No fragrance is like the breath of his mouth. Gems of the mind and pearls of the sea are worthless things when measured by his preciousness. The apostle tells us in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus is precious. He makes that point and he makes it very strongly. It must be understood there is no way the value of your life can be compared to the life of Jesus Christ. He is the sum of all the glory of God. He's your all. There is no other that can stand in his place in your heart. How would you answer the question, whose son is he? Have you thought about that? Have you really given that some thought? Whose son is Jesus Christ? 
you must be careful to consider the answer from your heart and mind. How would you answer the question? You must see him as the son of God and savior of his people. That's his glory and that's your salvation. He has the glory of God. He is the preeminent one. There's no other like him. Open your hearts. Open your hearts and receive him as the hope of your life. Glorify him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength because he alone is worthy of such glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may your eyes ever be upon your people. May you ever hear their prayers. May you always listen when they call you. For it was you who called them out of the nations of this world to be your inheritance. We gathered here this morning in the name of your only begotten Son because you called us to come. We come as your heirs and join heirs with Jesus Christ. Go with us this week. Use us to bring glory to your name. Strengthen our faith. Bless our witness. For it is in Christ's name we come. Amen. If you would take your hymnals.